have a couple of announcements to uh, run over. Uh, this Sunday, October the 9th at 4 o'clock, there will be a uh, teen event over at Grace Bible Church. And if um, and the kids need to uh, RSVP to Jeff Phipps. And then a week from Saturday, we'll have our church uh, picnic out at uh, Orlando Silas's. And that will be from 12 noon until 4 p.m. And there'll be sign-up sheets for food and other other things. And then also a reminder on the Operation Christmas Child, which is a ministry of uh, Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse. And there's information about that in the Fellowship Hall. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to focus setting aside all those cares and distractions that so easily get us off and get our minds onto something else rather than onto the Word. And then, uh, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your many blessings toward us, for the fact that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And, Father, we have your word, and we pray that as we study tonight that we would be uh, challenged by what we study, that the Holy Spirit would use it to uh, give us ideas and how we can improve our prayer life, that we may uh, be more faithful in our prayer life in following out the dictates of Scripture. Father, we pray for... Uh, this congregation, just pray for the spiritual growth of those that are here. We're thankful for so many that are growing, pursuing the word, and making your word a priority in their life. And now, Father, we pray that this time in your word this evening will be used for our spiritual strength and spiritual growth. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 4, and we started last time looking at the issue of prayer. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, we see uh, one of the first uh, prayer meetings in Scripture that is uh, described for us uh, in the uh, book of Acts. And it occurs, as, we, as I covered last time, after the release of Peter and John, when the Sanhedrin releases them after threatening them and warning them and doing all they can verbally to stop them from carrying out the mission that Jesus Christ gave to them and through them to every every Christian to take the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. And so as they returned, they gave a full report, we're told, to, those, to the other disciples and to those who were there, and it, they told them everything that had happened. And that was important because they waited for a full report before they prayed, so they would pray on the basis of knowledge and information and they would pray on the basis and have an uh, intelligent basis for prayer. And verse 24 states that 
when they heard that, the, the response of those that they came to, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now, it sounds, as I read this last time, it sounds as if they were all praying together. It is possible one, um, one writer that I uh, looked at on this made a comment that he believed that they all sang these psalms, which is possible. And then uh, one, of the, one of them led the others in prayer, and the idea that they prayed with one accord just simply uh, indicates that they were unified in their uh, prayer requests rather than all of them praying through the psalms at the same time. So we're not sure exactly what uh, way in which that happened, but what's important is to understand how they're structuring their prayer, how they are thinking through the Old Testament scriptures in order to take from Old Testament passages key phrases and ideas and doctrines and to weave them together to form a, a an argument to God as to why he should answer their request. Their uh, specific request is not given until verse 29. So verse 24 focuses on their address to God, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then from 25 down through 28, we have basically a rationale set up uh, as they're expressing, going, getting ready to express their petition to God so that they've gone to the scripture to build a case so that they're not just saying, well, Lord, if it's your will, would you let this happen? They're not coming with that sort of a wishy-washy mentality. They've thought this through, and they have crafted a rationale for God's action and how he should act and why he should act based on the Scripture, and then that is what strengthens uh, their petition. I started off last time pointing out a couple of passages from the New Testament emphasizing prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The verb there indicating that this is something that we should put our focus on. It is to be a priority. We are to uh, establish a regular prayer time that is going to, uh, that we're going to um, follow despite obstacles, opposition, interference, distractions, uh, anything of that nature. That's the idea of the word devote. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul states, pray without ceasing. Again, it's a command to pray and that this should continuously uh, represent our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always walking around with our heads bowed and our eyes closed or you'll start bumping into the walls and running into other people on the freeway, but it means that we're all re always ready to pray. Prayers can be short. They can be clauses. They can be full sentences. They can be paragraphs. Uh, prayer needs to envelop every aspect of our life because that means that then we are focused on the divine perspective and God's will and whatever it is we're doing, not to the distraction of our jobs, careers, day-to-day -day responsibilities, but that this is what surrounds and strengthens and undergirds our day-to-day -day responsibilities. I pointed out that for a definition, a uh, few things, that prayer is a grace provision in the church age, it's part of our royal priesthood. We have immediate access to God. The second part, prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege. The uh, veil is down. We have direct access to, 
to God through the Lord Jesus Christ to communicate to him about anything. And that means if you read through the Psalms and you think about the Psalms as personal prayer, and David's in a lot of tight situations, and there's other times when David or one of the others who write the Psalms are facing situations they just don't understand. And you can, you can sense the tension, the anger, uh, borderline resentment toward God, questioning God. The psalmist is not just sitting there uh, passively, but many times he starts off, Lord, why in the world are these evil, wicked people getting away with it? And your people are going through suffering. I just don't understand. There is, you can sense that the, the, the psalmist is being very honest with God and not afraid to raise questions and to talk about the, just the real issues of life uh, in terms of prayer. So prayer isn't some kind of specialized holy language where we tiptoe around God and we just say things in the right uh, biblical phrases but that we honestly come before God with our concerns, our cares, and express that to God, of course, in a respectful manner. The purpose of the communication is uh, at least uh, fivefold here, to acknowledge sin, express adoration and praise to God, to give thanks, to intercede for others, and to convey our own personal needs, petitions, and also to express whatever concerns that we that we have with God. That slide sort of got cut off there at the bottom. So we saw last time that Peter and um, that when they pray, they start off with adoration, focusing on who God is and what he has done. I pointed out that this is it's good to just think through the essence box and how different aspects of God's character relates to the specific situation that you are thinking about, to think about prayer. Don't just jump into prayer, but sometimes to think. Give it some thought ahead of time. Might, you might even try writing down some notes, reading through some passages of Scripture, promises that you want to uh, claim as a basis for your petition or supplication, and then begin to address God. Uh, the first part of the, of the uh, passage, the first part of the prayer as they address God, comes from um, a passage that is found in Psalm 146, 6, as well as Exodus 20, verse 11, and as well as several other passages, some of which I cited last time. For example, First Chronicles 16, 26, Nehemiah 9, 6, Psalm 121, 2, 124, 8, 134, 3, Again and again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is addressed as the God who made everything. And we have to ask the question, why is that important? And it's important because if God made everything and God has designed all of the intricate details of the most minute elements within creation down to the submolecular and subatomic level so that everything within the universe perfectly coalesces, everything works together, everything uh, is in harmony because God's th- thought, his, his understanding is so infinite that he's able to comprehend everything as one immediate whole, something that's just beyond us. Then if he can do that, 
then God can handle whatever problems that we face. So just thinking through the whole doctrine of creation and God as creator suddenly puts whatever problems we face uh, into perspective and helps us to understand that whatever it is we're facing, God can handle it. Because if God can handle creating the meteorological systems of the earth or the botanical systems of the earth or just the circulatory system in in various uh, mammalian bodies, then God can certainly handle the intricacies of whatever the problem is that you and I are facing. So the starting point has to do with God as the creator. A couple of passages I pointed out, for example, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. What a great promise. Nothing too hard for God. With God, nothing is impossible, the New Testament says. Now, when they are quoting this at the beginning from Psalm 146, verse uh, from Psalm 146, there's two verses in there that also apply to the circumstances that they're in, as I pointed out last time. In Psalm 146.3, there is a statement. What just happened? Okay. And Psalm 146.3, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. They just come out of a confrontation with the ruling authority in Judea, with the Sanhedrin. And so within the psalm that they're quoting is a promise and a command not to put their trust in human authorities. So that's a, a first observation. The second is that in Psalm 146.7, the verse that immediately follows the verse that they are quoting about God is the one who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The next verse states, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners, which is just what took place as they were released from prison. And so they have gone to this psalm because it fits their circumstance. They're not saying that their circumstance is the fulfillment of this prophecy, but they're applying the principles from this this uh, statement in the Psalms to their particular circumstances. Now, having introduced the prayer, the appeal to God, addressing him as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, they then move to the next level of, of the prayer, where they're going to lay the foundation for the petition that they're going to make in verse 29. And, and this foundation is going to come from Psalm 2. So in Acts 4.25, we read, Who by the mouth of your servant David, the who there is a relative pronoun that refers back to God, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. So they talk about God as the creator of everything, and now they're going to refer to God as the one who is the source of Scripture. He is the one who spoke through David as his servant. Now, what's interesting as we look at how this is structured in the uh, text of, of, um, in the text of the Hebrew... The emphasis is on 
the servant David, who by the mouth, literally by the mouth uh, of your uh, of your servant David, have said. And so the focus here is going to be on the act of inspiration. So in this statement, he's affirming both the divine authorship of Scripture, who by the Holy Spirit, but also that it is done by your forefather, the mouth of David. So there's an emphasis on both the divine author of Scripture and the human author of Scripture. Now let's just think a minute about how the mechanics of how we receive the Scripture. Now there's several different views that you'll hear from people about how we got the Bible. There are there are the what I would refer to as the liberal, man-centered views of how we got the Bible. There are those that, on the most extreme form, this is just uh, basically a religious um, hoax that there were people who got together and they were on sort of a religious power trip. They decided to write down certain things and they just knowingly made things up as they're attempting to uh, as they're attempting to uh, develop a new religion. This would be uh, trying to say that there's something like a, a Jim Jones. They're just basically cult leaders who are trying to start some new cult religion. That would be one of the most extreme uh, types of uh, views. You find that with how some uh, liberal scholars try to uh, talk, uh, teach the how the New Testament was written, that the it, it was written two, three hundred years after Jesus and the disciples lived, and it was all just basically made up on the basis of legend. And there's so many flaws and problems with that approach uh, historically because we have, uh, we have uh, examples, we have fragments of uh, the Gospels and other New Testament literature that go back very early into the first century. And these were found in places far removed from where they were originally written, which indicates that they are copies of an original document, and there had been uh, movement. The, the the documents, for example, one of the earliest that we have is from the Gospel of John, about um, uh, 110 or so, 110, 115 A.D., within just a 10, 10 or 15 years of the death of the Apostle John, and yet uh, it has traveled. So he wrote the Gospel uh, probably around 90, so um, that would give 10, 25 years, maybe 15, 25 years, and it shows that that the Gospel of John has been copied and copied and has spread around uh, the Roman Empire. So there's uh, that, that that's the most extreme humanistic rational view of of uh, how we got the New Testament. Then there are others who believe that somehow uh, there was something that these were godly men, but they're just writing about their own experiences with God. And so there's still errors within um, within the Scripture. Others may say, well, it's just basically history, but it, it doesn't mean that it's accurate. It's been editorialized too much in terms of religion. But that's not what the Bible claims for itself. What the Bible claims for itself, both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, is that this is the very words of God that were given in some way to the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote was without error, that they wrote accurately and what they expressed was was not uh, based on the mythologies or the traditions 
of the people and times in which they lived. There were over 40 different writers of Scripture over a period of time from 1400 B.C. when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the Torah, all the way up to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, about 95 A.D. So this is a period of 1500 years. You have 40 different people writing on some of the most controversial topics and issues in all of human history, and they don't contradict each other. They don't disagree with each other. There are times when people say, well, there seems to be a disagreement between this and this, but if the original languages are consulted and uh, work proper work is done, it's usually dis, uh, pretty easily explained why there's not uh, a, a contradiction, that it's only, only apparent. But throughout the scriptures, you have these statements that the origin of this material is from God. For example, in the Old Testament, over 840 times you have the statement, thus says the Lord, or something said this, so the Lord says, uh, making a, the statement that what is said comes from the Lord. Beyond that, you have statements within the Mosaic Law that are, that are tests for a prophet. And if they fail those tests, then it was a capital crime, a capital penalty, and they would be uh, were to be executed if they were a false prophet. So there was a death penalty that went along with, with being a false prophet. The question occurs, though, well, how did this happen? Well, it happened, uh, uh, we don't know all of the different ways in which God worked through the writers of Scripture, but we know that that some Scripture was uh, almost dictated by God. For example, much of the Mosaic law itself, from the Ten Commandments through all of the different ordinances in uh, Exodus, from Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus chapter 40, some of the different ordinances that are listed in terms of the Levitical offerings are all stated directly as coming from God. God spoke to Moses, and Moses wrote it down. Or in some cases, the finger of God with the Ten Commandments is indicated. But that, it, that doesn't cover all of Scripture. There are times when the writers of Scripture clearly used historical sources. They did research. We have these statements that we studied when I taught through Genesis. These are the generations of, which should be understood in the sense of these are sort of the records of, or this is what happened to the descendants of Adam. This is what happened to the descendants of Abraham. And that these indicate that there were, from the time of Adam, records that were kept that were passed on and preserved from generation to generation. And then when Moses wrote Genesis, he used that, and God the Holy Spirit oversaw the process working through him so that it's not dictation, but that God the Holy Spirit is overseeing or superintending the process so that what Moses wrote was protected from error and was exactly what God wanted to have written. So you have both the human element and the divine element. The human element certainly would be subject to flaw and failure and misrepresentation, but the presence of the divine element guaranteed and protected the writings from being affected by the fallen nature of man. So this is seen again in this passage where we have the two statements who by the Holy Spirit, using the Greek preposition dia, 
indicating intermediate means who by, by or through the Holy Spirit and then of the mouth of our father David or from the mouth of our father David. So it uses a genitive there. You don't have a repetition of a preposition. And that indicates that, that it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who is working th- through or of or from the source of, that be a genitive of source, from the source of the mouth of our father David uh, did say. And so you have this combination of those two, of the two factors that come in, in Scripture. We see the same kind of statement in Acts twenty-eight twenty-five. Uh, where we read, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed. After Paul had said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father. So again, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah. And and these kinds of statements are also uh, found throughout the Old Testament. Jesus, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in speaking about the importance of the word, said that uh, it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bread is a reference to, um, the bread is a reference to the uh, manna that God provided for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness and that it's not just that God provides physical sustenance, but ultimately what's important is the spiritual sustenance, which comes from the mouth of God, that which God has has inspired, that which God has breathed out in Scripture. This brings us to the two most important passages in the New Testament on the mechanics or how inspiration took place. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we have the phrase, All Scripture. Now, it doesn't say... Some scripture, and in context, is primarily, Paul mostly has in mind the Old Testament. He just gets uh, finished in verses 14 and 15 talking about how Timothy was raised by his mother and his grandmother and taught the scriptures, the holy writings. Well, when Timothy was growing up, there was no New Testament. So he is uh, trained by by his mother and his grandmother in the Old Testament scriptures. And so then Paul says all Scripture, he's clearly referring to the Old Testament text. That doesn't exclude the New Testament, but he's, his primary, primary thought is Old Testament plus uh, maybe half or a little more, maybe two-thirds of the New Testament had been written by this time. So he says all Scripture is, and inspiration is one of those funny words that we have. We talk about an, uh, a painter or a, or a singer or a... Uh, writer who just just really performs exceptionally well, and we say, oh, that was inspired. But that's not what this word really means. The concept of spiration is the concept of breathing. Spiration is a cognate of the word spirit for breath. Somebody asked me the other day, I don't know who it was, somebody came up and asked me a question after church on Sunday about... um, pneumatics, and if that was how that was related to the word for spirit. The word pneuma, which we translate spirit in some passages, has about eight or nine meanings. It can mean air, wind, breath. Um, when you get pneumonia, 
from pneuma. It has to do with your lungs and breathing, breath, uh, so that the word has a range of meanings, and um, and that's that's the word related to that we translate spirit, and where we get the the core meaning of this word, uh, spiration. The core or root here, inspiration, has to do with something going in, and that is um, uh, close to what this is saying in the Greek. The Greek word is there in the box, uh, theopneustos, and it means God breathed. God is really the actor here, the one who is performing the action of breathing something out. It, the picture is that God exhales the content of Scripture and it goes in through the writer of the Scripture and then he then exhales it uh onto the paper as he writes under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, for the purpose that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished for every good work. There we not only get the doctrine of inspiration, and therefore inerrancy because God is true, that which he produces is true, and that means that Scripture itself must be true and without error. But it also teaches us the sufficiency of Scripture in the second verse. It is all that is needed in order to fully equip us for every issue in life. Now, this verse tells us the fact of inspiration, but doesn't tell us the how or the mechanics of inspiration. This is left to Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, but I've included verse 19 for the purpose of having context. In verse 19, Peter writes, and so we have the prophetic word. Now, is he talking about the New Testament or Old Testament? Primarily, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's been talking in context about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So we, he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, see in verse 19 he's talking about Old Testament prophecy related to the Messiah, and he says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, when we see that word interpretation, we tend to think of what the pastor or the teacher, the instructor is doing in explaining the word. But that's not the focal point here. It's more on what the writer is writing down. That's the explanation we're talking about. It's what is written down. He says, no, prophe- no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. It doesn't originate because somebody is, d- deems themselves to be a religious leader. Now, there were many people like that in the Old Testament that were false prophets. But that's why God gave those two tests in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, for evaluating and testing uh, what somebody said. So it's not just anybody could come along and say, well, God told me to say this, but there was a test that to validate them. 
Uh, he says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, that is, men set apart by God. The meaning of the word holy is to be set apart. Uh, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the key phrase for understanding how the Holy Spirit worked. So let's just look, first of all, at the first first uh, verse there, verse 20. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is. Now, that's an important word. Is is called a, an existential verb. That means it has to do with something being in existence or coming into existence. Now, in, in Greek, as in English, we have the word is or being, which implies something that is existing or continues to exist. And then we have the word became, which implies something that wasn't existing that comes into existence. For example, in the scriptures, in John chapter 1, John says, in the beginning was the word. And he uses me, the, the Greek verb for is. But then in verse 4, John writes, and there, and in English it's translated, there was a man named John. But the was there isn't a translation of the same Greek verb. It's genomai, the verb we have here. There came into existence a man named John. Because in the first three verses we're talking about the eternal always existing Lagos, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then in contrast to the one who always is, you are always was in eternity past, you have John the Baptist who comes into existence. So that's the verb that's here. It's not a um, it's not a me for is of any private in, in interpretation. It has the idea of something coming into existence, something that is created, something that uh, is brought uh, into brought into existence. So I've translated it in the bottom of the purple box. No prophecy of Scripture comes into existence. See, I'm keeping that uh, uh, present tense there as a universal principle. No prophecy of Scripture comes into existence by one's own explanation. He states this as a gnomic or universal uh, principle. And the word for interpretation is the Greek word epilusis, meaning explanation or interpretation. Uh, the word idiot, where we get our word idiot, the Greek word idios, which means originally it meant something that was one's own, and it eventually took on the tones of describing narcissism, somebody who's extremely self-absorbed, until eventually it, uh, as it moves over into English, it picks up the idea of somebody who's so self-absorbed they're just an idiot. So... That's where we get our word idiot is from idios in the Greek, meaning one's own. So it's, he says, no scripture comes into existence as a result of one's own explanation. It's a universal statement. The, the, in, in other words, the prophets didn't generate this out of their own thinking. It, it came to them. He goes on to explain it further in verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, or men set apart by God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the word translated uh, 
as they were moved, is a present passive participle of Pharaoh, which means to bring or to carry something from one place to another. And we can understand the uh, significance of this word if we look at a passage in Acts when Paul is on a sailing ship on his way to Rome. It's, the word is used in Acts 27.15 and Acts 27.17, just as we talk about a sailing vessel being on a certain bearing or course. That It's that similar idea. And as the ship was taking Paul to Rome uh, and it wrecked, um, before it was wrecked on Malta, it ran into a terrible storm, and the winds were so strong that the sailors couldn't guide the ship And so the ship is just moved along by these powerful, powerful uh, storm winds as, and completely out of control. And the ship is going to, was going to go wherever the winds blew it. And that's the idea here is that, that it's the real control over these men and their thinking as they were writing scripture was the Holy Spirit who is the driving force behind what they are writing. And so it's as the as the Holy Spirit moved them and directed them, uh, they write what they are to write. Now it's not dictation, and we don't know how the Holy Spirit works specifically, but He prevented them from error, utilizing their own individual backgrounds, education, experiences to write exactly what God intended uh, for them to write. And so we see that the first thing that we uh, see in terms of understanding prayer in verse 25 is an understanding that the verses that they are quoting come from the Holy Spirit. They come by the Holy Spirit and who is speaking through the mouth of your servant David or of your, your of our father or forefather David. Uh, David, your servant. Having said that, they go to a passage in Scripture, Psalm 2. So turn with me now. I want to go look at this psalm to understand it, to see how they got from this psalm to what they do in the verse. In Psalm 2, look at the beginning of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins, verse 1, why do the nations rage? Notice there's no superscript there. If you turn over a page or two to Psalm 7, Psalm 7 has a superscript prior to verse 1, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, in your English, our English Bibles, that's set usually in a little bit smaller font, ahead of verse 1, but in the Hebrew text, that's verse 1. That's inspired. That's scripture. That's not something some editor added later on or an English editor added. That is part of the uh, inspired text of scripture. And so you have uh, past, uh, statements like that, Psalm 6, Psalm 7, Psalm 8, Psalm 9, all say that they are Psalms of David. You see anything like that before verse 1? No, but Acts 4 says that this was given through the mouth of David. So we know from Acts chapter 4, verse 25, that this is a Davidic psalm that David wrote 
uh, wrote Psalm 2. Now, let me read to you verse 25 and 25 and 26. You look at the first part of Psalm 2. And, and verses one and two, and I will read from what Paul, I mean, what um, what they prayed in verse twenty-five and twenty-six. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Now, when we turn to Psalm 2, we ought to understand Psalm 2 within its original context. Remember, there's only one single meaning of Scripture. Every Scripture only has one meaning. That's the principle of interpretation called single meaning. You can't violate that. Whenever anybody says anything or writes anything, there's only one meaning that they are intending to convey. Now, we understand that there are double entendres and there are other uh, features like that that, that indicate uh, different ways of communicating a double-layer message uh, that doesn't deny that, but it's not as if we can go around the Sunday school classroom like many churches do and, and ask the question, well, what does that mean to you, Billy? What does that mean to you, Jane? And come up with 15 different interpretations. David wrote this, and he intended only one thing. Under the inspiration of Scripture, the dual authors of Scripture intended to communicate one idea. Now, there may be one interpretation, but there may be a lot of uh, different applications. And there are different ways in which we deal with application. Uh, Right now, I'm meeting with a group of pastors on Sunday morning. We're working our way through some... uh, uh, problems related to interpretation in the upper room discourse. And uh, just just to give you a sense of this, it's the idea of when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples there and he says things like, well, uh, tells them to get up and leave the room and they begin to walk towards Golgotha, he's obviously only talking to the 11 disciples that are with him. But in the next verse when he says, you plural, we have a tendency to think that that all of a sudden now he's talking to us. Well, which is it? And we have to be very careful in how we understand uh, and interpret these passages. Either Jesus is talking to us in John uh, 14 through 16, or he's talking to his disciples. You can't have both. He can't go back and forth. Now, there are places within there where he states universal principles. And so you have to understand how do we discern when he is saying something that has application beyond the 12. When Jesus says in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will come and he will bring to your memory all things that I have taught you. See, there's no application of that for you and I. Because we didn't hear Jesus say anything. Doesn't have any application for us. And that's okay. Sometimes people think, well, there's got to be some application. Well, you can extrapolate far enough back in terms of general generalizations to make an application in the sense that God oversaw a process of writing Scripture so that what Jesus taught was brought accurately to the mind of the writer so that we could have an accurate 
accounting of Jesus' teaching, and that would be an application. But we got pretty far away from the text itself to make that application. These are some of the challenges that we have, and people often don't understand the difference between an application and an interpretation. An interpretation has to do with the specific meaning of a text uh, as was intended by its author. Now, when this was written, this was written as a messianic prophecy. Early Jewish writers, I'm talking about writings that we have from the early period, from the early Christian era, the period prior to Christ, uh, indicate that the uh, rabbis before Christ, at the time of Christ, and in the early part of the Christian era, understood this to be a prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. As a result of its use by Christians, this passage is quoted numerous times uh, by, um, by the New Testament. For example, it's used not only in our passage in Acts 4.25 uh, 4, and 26, but also in Acts 13.33, uh, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 5.5, 5, and uh, as well as in Revelation 2.27, Revelation 12.5, and Revelation 19.15. This is one of this, along with Psalm 110, are some of the most is some of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Well, as you as Judaism began to develop and to entrench itself in the uh, period after the destruction of the temple you began to have recognize that there was this conflict with Christian interpretation. And so different passages that were often cited by those who were Christians had to be reinterpreted. And so by the time you get into the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, the traditional Messianic interpretation of various passages from Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, and others were changed and new interpretations were developed in order to avoid the clear messianic interpretation uh, that clearly pointed to to Jesus because too many Jews were becoming convinced that these passages clearly did teach a suffering messiah now this passage is not teaching a suffering messiah but it is teaching a ruling victorious messiah in the first 3 verses give us a description of the mentality of the nations, the Gentiles, the people of the earth. And in this sense, when you get into the second clause, the people plotting a vain thing, it takes the, the word there for people, uh, which is the word uh, laom, uh, takes it beyond simply the Gentile in terms of a Gentile-Jew distinction, and it would include the Jewish people. Uh, Am is a is a Hebrew word for people and often refers to the people of the land. For example, in Hosea, uh, Hosea was to have a son and name him Lo Ami, not my people, and it was had a symbolic value. So we have the initial statement: Why do the nations or the goy uh, goyim rage, and the people plot a uh, vain thing? So you see the parallelism. Uh, between the first line and the second line. The first line uh, talks about nations, second line people. Uh, first line, they, nations rage. Second line, they plot a vain thing. They're pursuing an activity that is unprofitable. 
The kings of the earth then are described in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves. They, they entrench themselves is the idea there in the, um, in the Greek verb, uh, Hebrew verb, ratsav, meaning, uh, they cause themselves to be set. It's a hith, uh, hithpael, uh, which is a reflexive nuance to the verb. Uh, they cause themselves to be entrenched in their position. No matter what happens, we aren't going to accept God. We are set against him. And then the next line, the rulers, parallel to kings of the earth, the word there for rulers is razaz, indicating uh, could be dignitaries, rulers, diplomats. They take counsel together, yasad, indicating that they conspire together against Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, and against his Mashiach, the word for Messiah, against his Mashiach. So you have two personages here, Yahweh and the Mashiach. And they rage against him and they say, let us break their bonds in pieces. So you have the issue again of the sovereignty of God, the authority of God, and human rebellion rejecting who God is. Now, we see this same attitude among the kings of the earth in Revelation. You remember when we went through Revelation, we spent a lot of time on this. In Revelation chapter 6, we have a description of the six seal judgments. And in the sixth seal judgment, there is a, a like an asteroid shower that comes upon the earth, and we're told the response of the Leaders on the earth, the kings of the earth, in verse 15, notice the same phrase, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us. Rather than submit to God, their attitude is fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's the Messiah coming now in judgment. Lamb being the favorite title that John the Apostle uses for Jesus in Revelation, used it 27 times. And then in verse 17, they continue, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who's able to stand? See, they recognize that, God, that the wrath of the Lamb has come. This is, this is the battle, the raging, that is prophesied in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. The kings of the earth are referred to again later in Revelation, in Revelation 16, 13, during one of the interludes. And John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to who? The kings of the earth. These are the same kings of the earth that are mentioned in Psalm 2, verse 2. Uh, they go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So you see in these passages here, to understand both the, the Revelation 6 and Revelation 16 passages, you have to be, go back to Psalm 2 and understanding this is the, the unification of the leaders of the human kingdoms and nations against God. Now, in the next three verses, we see God's response to the human rulers who are rebelling against him. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them in derision. God is not politically correct. God has no respect 
for leaders that are wrong, leaders that are out of line. He is not, does not feel as if he has to respect them in any way whatsoever because the one they're rebelling against is him. So we read, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And then the parallel, the Lord, that is Yahweh again, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So again, we have this concept of the wrath of God, the judgment of God in the future. And what does God say? He says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is when the Messiah is depicted in Zechariah 10 and 11, chapters 10 and 11 returns to the earth and returns to the Mount of Olives and returns to Jerusalem. And so God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So he's the, David, <coughs> David is looking into the future. He's looking ahead to that time when the Messiah will come to establish his kingdom. And God says, I have set him on my holy hill of Zion, which is Jerusalem. And he says, I will declare the decree. Now, the decree is something that has been made prior to this time. This isn't a decree that is decreed at some time in the future when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation. This is a decree that was made prior to Genesis 1. He says, I will declare the decree. So the decree was made in eternity past. The Lord has said to me, and this is the decree. Who's the me? The me is the anointed one, the Messiah. The Lord here refers to God the Father, Yahweh. The decree was, you are my son. So in eternity past, the son is decreed as the son. That's the relationship between these two members of the Trinity. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the sense there in the Hebrew is, is the realization of this decree that has been made from all of eternity. And so he's, he decrees that, that the, the Son is eternally his. And in verse 8 he says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. When does that occur? That is when, remember in uh, Romans, I mean Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb comes forward to take the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and this scroll, the opening of that scroll, that scroll is a title deed for his kingdom on the planet. And the seven years of tribulation is the judgment that God brings upon the earth, just as he did upon Egypt in uh, the Exodus period, bringing that judgment upon the earth so that the, the uh, earth would be cleansed of the rebels against God, and then the Messiah establishes his kingdom. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, now we understand this psalm. It is a messianic psalm. It speaks of a future time when all of the kings, all of the authorities, all the sovereigns, all the rulers, all the Sanhedrins and religious leaders and all the earth are all ganged up together against God. And they seek to destroy God, and God just laughs at them. Now, the question is, why do they quote that in their prayer? 
because that's the situation they're facing, is they are facing an authority conflict where the rulers of Judea, the Sanhedrin, have ordered them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and they have to decide what they're going to do, and they recognize that this pattern is the same kind of thing that is spoken of here. Remember when I've taught you about the ways in which Old Testament was quoted in the New Testament, that sometimes you have uh, actual predictive prophecy that is fulfilled, like in Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, or the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then you have other passages that talk about uh, an actual historical event that is a pattern or a foreshadowing for an event that occurs later on in history. The third way was uh, an actual either historical event or prophecy that isn't being specifically fulfilled now, but it is similar to, so it is being used as an illustration. And then the fourth was uh, saying that the Old Testament teaches, says something like Jesus would be, the Messiah would be a Nazarene, but it really never actually says that, but it's a summary of the ideas that are presented there. Well, this is again the third type. It's an application that just as in the end of days, the nations will rise up in opposition to the Messiah, we're seeing a foreshadowing of this right now as the Sanhedrin again sets themselves up in opposition against the Messiah. And so they quote this psalm to emphasize to God in their prayer that his revealed will based on this psalm is to put down the attack of the secular powers and kings and rulers and uh, religious authorities against the Messiah. That is the revealed will of God. He is going to put down the rebels. Ultimately, God wins. God will have the victory. And so by reciting this and going to this prayer, they are going to this psalm, they are reminding themselves that God will win. There will be a conflict between the kings of the earth and God until it is resolved at the Battle of Armageddon and yet, so th- this re- gives them a sense of confidence in uh, God's control over the situation. Now, as they do this, let's go back to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4 and just wrap this part of it up tonight. As they come to the conclusion here, they recognize that in this time period in history, there is going to be this ongoing conflict. They state the first two verses from Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26, and then they say in verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, notice, anointed is translation of the Greek word uh, creo, which is where we get the word Christos, the noun, for the anointed one. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Noun Mashiach for Messiah or the Anointed One. So there's there's they're picking up the the words that are there in the text. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Now notice in verse 26. Here, let me skip ahead a slide. And verse 26 which quotes Psalm 2.2, the kings of the earth took their stand, the rulers were what? Gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his Messiah. 
And so their application is for truly against your servant, your Jesus whom you anointed. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and people of Israel were gathered together. So they're making application using the same verbiage. They're gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So this is laying down the foundation. They understand, though, that there is ongoing suffering in this church age until the culmination of this conflict. We saw this same principle in Colossians 1.24 three or four weeks ago where Paul made the statement, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions. Remember, that's not the redemptive suffering of Christ on the cross, but it's the word thlipsis, meaning the ongoing uh, adversity or tribulation in his life for the sake of his body, which is the church. There is this ongoing tribulation or adversity until Jesus returns. And so they've gone to an Old Testament passage. They've pulled out from it key principles for application, and now they're using that as the foundation for their petition, which they bring to the Lord in verse 29, and we will begin in verse 29 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Help us to apply this in our own prayer life, thinking through uh, the ideas in Scripture, meditating upon your word so that we come to understand what it means, and then we can use that in application, and we can use that then to uh, strengthen our prayers and structure our prayers in a way that honors your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.